Hey there. Thank you for tapping over to this episode of Coast to Coast. I have a pension for old books and the knowledge of a past time that's locked within them. Sometimes, many times, when I pick them up, it feels like I'm transported back to a completely different age. But the issues and conversations are often the same as now, both of which were published in the 1950s. One is a history of Europe that in its now old proper American dialect, which gives a view of the hundred years before 1950, that are devoid of all the appropriation of history we take for granted, essentially the years of peace since World War II, and opens talking about the constant conflict that has historically occurred in Europe. A quite stark contrast to the backpacking peace that most of us have experienced there, with only a threat of conflict coming from a single large foe. The conflict it talks about in this book feels at home today, though, with rising conflicts cropping up with the Balkans again, or, of course, Ukraine and Russia. The other book I've been thinking a lot about is titled Machines and Morality in the 1850s and speaks to the hockey stick of Industrial Revolution in the frame of the United States, breaking down the manufacturing, population, regional growth that occurred. I picked this book up on the strength of its title alone and the presumption of what this would say about our time. Funnily enough, though, the title was more of an allusion to the rising of machines that was happening at the time, and mostly was centered around overflowing cornucopia of moral issues that rose in the time. The moral issues and the Industrial Revolution, of course, tied together with machines, increased the production of everything from clothing to food to luxury items, giving rise to concentrated wealth in smaller and smaller hands, which is really, in hindsight, an easy thing to see from centralization that comes with Industrial Revolution, as much as, as well, the increasing population from just having more means to grow people. What's funny to me in hindsight when I picked up this book is that I overlaid my time onto the title, thinking it must be a juxtaposition of just morality and machines because that's what's most talked about now. When in fact, it was an exploration of how the morality and machines were woven together with the time and the ethics and how they were all deployed not one being dependent on the other, but within a much larger complex landscape. Artificial intelligence, or the ability for computers to do jobs typically done by a human, is perennially in the news and fear of the moment. Will it destroy people's jobs? Is viscerally being talked about in the even Hollywood writer's strike, and is easily understood in an instant when one can take a few sentences put it into an AI, and all of a sudden it's drawing a detailed picture of Tom Cruise as a grocery bagger. And even more close to home, AI outperforming radiologists and accountants at their daily tasks. What I've been wondering about lately, though, is if while the threats of AI and its impact is very real, if they should still be taking in a much wider complex landscape of 30 years of outsourcing, 30 years of layoffs, 30 years of acquisitions, mergers and private equity now buying up everything from doctor's offices to education companies. Of how today people's jobs and careers writ large are going through a dynamic and rapid shakeup at a moment's notice, if any notice at all. The answer in as far as I'm concerned is an overwhelming yes. 
of course there are legitimate concerns around AI. Also assume there are issues of our time, which include demographic shifts, a large top-heavy population we're entering. Succinctly putting it, America and nearly all else of the developed world, the largest segment of the population is the segment that's retiring, with the cohort who's entering the workforce entirely too small to replace them. Given that stark fact, we almost require AI to augment who's already in the workforce and increase their capacity. There is an incredible amount of fear when it comes to the capacities of AI. So much so that even in this discussion centered around the duality of what could be good and bad from it, tips more and more often to the bad. A feature of human nature, of course, we select for the ill because that is what will harm us more. However, I want to posit, however, I want to say that it is not so much the single instance and capability of our time that is the cause of us thinking about these ills, but the overwhelming amount of change occurring and the fear we have in our nature of change, especially rapid. The climate is fluctuating, government is shifting, health is becoming more rare, the sins of growth are catching up, Throwing chemicals and plastics and everything is becoming overwhelming in the knock-on effects. And for the first time in at least 30-odd years, the threat of full-on global war feels palpable. So then, can we at all detach a technology coming of age from the culture of the time it's existing in? I increasingly think we can't. Perhaps, then... An idea for our time is to simply be aware of that, both what technology is growing up in that time and how that tech is perceived is a direct result and correlation to the culture of that time. Because you take out job-killing AI and you still end up with a lot of people worried about a whole lot of doom and gloom scenarios. When we think about AI then, perhaps we shouldn't ignore all the very real and very obvious problems that are coming along with it, like copyright infringement, or atrophying our creativity in a similar way to how Google Maps did it for directions, or ever more believing falsehoods we wouldn't have at all fallen for with a search engine because it comes with increased confidence of a chat dialogue. Instead, simply and foundationally, we should be aware of these aspects along with the benefits to productivity or other aspects of our life, like being able to more easily traverse the massive amount of data in the world or level the playing field in education with someone with just access to an AI can take on a new field or an expertise. All of these possibilities are likely to happen. It just depends on the individual. That's the complexity of our age. We can destroy whole segments while creating whole new ones. The race then, as I see it, is being aware that that is the case and to simultaneously be aware that corporate interests are fighting to maintain their hold against an ever-expanding, open-source, open anarchistic movement. In this episode, we have a discussion where many of these ideas and more come up and spar off with each other. The conversation is with Dr. Yusuf Smith, a medical doctor, fitness expert, and podcaster. 
along with Rowan Price, marketing branding extraordinaire, who's also building an AI platform called messagemaps.io. Both of them have been on many episodes in the past for both interviews and conversations. I'll link all of that below in the show notes. Feel free to check them out, including Rowan talking about his experience that actually was the start of this series on September 11th, 2001. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope wherever you are on our big, blue, beautiful planet, that this is finding you well and that you're on the process to thriving. Take care. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, please visit us at bandwidth.productions. There really needs to be bongs. I'm going to go, I'm going to send Riverside <laughs> some, uh, some notes. All right. So thank you all for joining. I will take care of your introduction. You could look back at the other episodes. You guys have both been on multiple times, actually. I think you guys have been on the most, which is ironic. Uh, I don't know if it's ironic. I just talked to you guys the most. Maybe that's why. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna, this is about AI. I want to start with a question. We usually do one that's you know happiness related. I'm going to change it a little bit this time. And then I have a series of things to spur discussion. So going first, either of you can wrestle for who wants to go. Uh, what are you most excited about with AI? And what are you most concerned about? Go for it. Cool. Good afternoon. <laughs> so my biggest concern about AI was raised by Tristan Harris, and it got me thinking down this little rabbit hole that we have a potential intersection where we're repurposing existing hardware but applying machine learning algorithms onto that. And we could end up with this kind of coalescence of risks that we didn't anticipate. So for example, the one that Tristan or Tristan gives in his lecture is the biointerference of humans over EMF waves. And this is something that exists with any house that has a Wi-Fi router or anything that produces EMF, that your body produces a certain pattern of interference over that. A machine learning algorithm can then map that interference to the joint markers on your body and see you moving around your building without the need for a camera and without the need for installing any new hardware into your house. So you've essentially got this hardware that already exists, machine learning algorithm, and suddenly you now have surveillance into buildings everywhere without cameras. So the other the other similar things would be smart homes. So I think there was a case of some someone hacking into somebody's Bluetooth washer dryer and being able to cause a house fire through remotely tapping into that. Just more examples of things that already exist that can be repurposed for nefarious purposes. Yeah. Just to start things on a on a joyful So that's the there. thing you you like you're most <laughs> excited about or you're most worried about? <laughs> can't wait for that to be to be, that to be launched on the roadmap someone you've been wanting to really wanting to know their their daily habits for so <laughs> and, and literally burn their house down <laughs> yeah so 
neighbors. We, yeah, we can start with just the one. We can start with most concerned, and then we can end happy. So cool. go ahead. Yeah, so, so I think that's the key thing is that there's lots of potentially apocalyptic scenarios that I hope that people much smarter than me will be able to um, be able to outpace and defend against. But we won't that, you know, virus creation, 3D printing, washer dryers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these, there's so much hardware that could be repurposed and there's potentially hundreds or thousands of exploits that are going to take a while to patch up. And what if you've got a washer dryer that you bought before 2022? Maybe you're at higher risk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Probably the newer, the, the more recent you bought it, the more higher risk you you are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about complexity, like you know, the science of complexity and just the concept of it. Uh, and I think the more that we put Internet of Things and everything, the more complex we're making everything, um, and we're gonna have ever more unintended consequences if it's intentionally or unintentionally uh, having a washer dryer blow up. Um, or just how much technology we're putting into things and it's, it's going to make it more likely to fail. You know, I mean like before Toyota, everyone just accepted that their cars were shit. Like, I feel like (laughs) we either, we were raised at a time where we knew which car brands were good or which ones were worse, but they were really the first ones to say there's 10,000 parts in a car. We're going to make every single one of them work. Um, and I don't think we're going through the same diligence right now whatsoever. No, it's a, it's a different philosophy if that that was let's think product first whereas now it's technology first i saw something on kickstarter that was a bluetooth salt shaker and (laughs) you're thinking like what they've done there is that we have this technology how can we thumb it into the most unnecessary items and we obviously we're getting that with SaaS and ai and um i'm sure many other things that are just getting thumbed in because why not it's the only thing getting funding right now what do you think, Rowan? Um, yeah, I'm also concerned about that. I think it's a, I think it's a, 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 just an opportunity to, to sell advertising. There's like a, a lot of a lot of situations where you could get super personalized ads in, in your home or maybe even in your mind, um, that you don't necessarily want. Like I think there's the potential for thought thought manipulation so that you could could be caused to think about a certain brand um, just as a result of subliminal signals passed through the Internet of Things scenario, like the AI-enabled Internet of Things scenario that with the devices you're talking about, Yusef, Bluetooth salt shaker, I mean, I think there's, there's ways to put, yeah, to put thoughts in your head and affect the language in your head, I guess, and that's Definitely a concern. You, you shake the sauce and it's going, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> this is way too salty. Damn it. I really want a Coke. Yeah, it could be like a jingle, you know, like a Coca-Cola jingle. <laughs> so. McDonald's actually is, is already put out there that they want this. I'm not even joking. The Wow. Yeah. With the mean, which, putting advertisements in your uh, head. Yeah. Really? Interesting. Yes. Yeah. The thing is that, like, it's not, it's not really that. It, it's... It's just a difference in degree, but not in kind. You know, it's just getting the advertising closer and closer to our brains until it goes past our skull. Yeah, it's a difference it, but... in degree. Exactly. I had I worked with someone that had a, a patent on sending ads to your phone based on your geographic location, like down to the meter, which is probably already happening. But 
it's the same concept, right? It's just taking that concept and accelerating it past your phone into just bypassing your phone, I guess, and just going straight into your head. Um, and um, I decided to prove that I'm in Berlin by having some people come and speak German around my desk. <laughs> that's a great motif. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's also... Uh, interesting because both of them are very similar actually in both what you said it's it's kind of the, the biofeedback of we have this these things now we have algorithms that are ever more sophisticated how can we use either its brainwave patterns or the you know interference of emf into your you know physical sphere uh and meat meat vehicle uh to be able to either know where you are blow up your house or in, invade your mm -hmm. thoughts um, because there's ever increasing algorithms to be able to and time i mean that's that's the other thing is that algorithms and ai can do things faster because it's built differently than humans where it would take generations or cycles of people um, it can take just several training runs so i suppose the the only difference between the concerns that myself and rowan have both sound like yeah repurposing of either physical hardware or biological hardware is that one opens up to exploits from bad actors and the other is institutionalized advertising as something that is if anything there's like all the cash is going to go into that if if they can get thought insertion <laughs> successfully working <laughs> it's yeah. a scary thought that is a scary thought yeah, what I worry most about is the alteration of culture and what we think we are as humans versus what we are. So I think there's there's an ever-increasing drive of humans and human culture to be more and more machine-like. If it's filling out a form and the expectation that you fill out a form and it's totally okay and that's normal, uh, when it's really that you're just putting air data entry of whatever it may be, um, and we just expect that, or the interfa interface between other people and kind of the... Um, I, heard, I heard this really interesting that it used to be ch uh, church, then state, then network. That's what our, our communities used to be. So it used to be based around our religions, which our religions then influenced the state. And it became the state with countries and all that. And now it's network. You know, one of the examples being if you did something stupid, which what are you most upset? I mean, what, are you, what would you be most affected by um, as far as other people? And before it was, you know, the, your physical sphere of the people in your city. And now it's your network of, of people. Like, I mean, you guys are, are friends of mine and you guys live nowhere near me. I haven't even seen you in person, which is, you know, a great example of that. Um, so I, I worry more and more about how, you know, artificial intelligence, if it's chat GPT giving us ideas that it's so brazenly never seems to be able to say, I don't know that. Um, or if it's the way that we see other people, I think there's, I think it's double-edged sword because I think it also could you know, close the barriers between people, but I most worry about the pace of acceleration and how that's going to get us to not be able to react to it because I don't think we've advanced our philosophy enough to be able to accept, oh, this is the pace of change. We, we can know that's the pace of change and try to resist it changing us in ways that we're unaware of. If it's unaware of thoughts invading our head that aren't our own, kind of the ancient know thyself. Um, or if it's... Uh, knowing maybe I don't need Bluetooth on my washing machine, that I could just listen for a bong. Yeah, I wonder if um, 
I mean, I think, I think like those two concerns are related in that they're about um, like the developing the ability to, um, I guess, improve, like just improve the way you think or just the, your, your kind of like your, your approach to just existing throughout the day so that you're, I guess, more autonomous, like mentally and emotionally autonomous and um, a little bit more liberated from um, just being like a continually responsive to whatever stimulus is around you. Um, like, I wonder if, like, I wonder if, and I know that when I'm really tired, for example, I don't get enough sleep, I'm just much more susceptible to stimulus in terms of the direction my thoughts and my emotions take throughout, throughout the day. Um, and then the opposite is true, right? So I wonder if that kind of thing would, it just generally makes you less susceptible to information overload that we've had for at least 15 years, right? With the internet and social media, with, with feeds. Um, and um, less susceptible to just your thought manipulation. I, mean, I think the, the, the concern for me there with, I think with your point, Yusuf, is about the, the violation of privacy and the manipulation of people by people who have a lot more assets than those that they're manipulating. That's, that's really the concern. It's like, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's already a huge imbalance of power and could it be um, aggravated or accelerated um, with this kind of, with these technologies. That's my concern as well. Though, as you say, we're massively outgunned by the the institution and the amount of money that's being poured into being able to to insert that thought into your head. Yeah. But as you said, there's a there's a let's say there's a therapeutic range, or there's a um, not the right term. There's there's a range of your internal defenses and your ability to withstand external influence in your mind and that comes from your general level of resilience your trauma tolerance your sleep deprivation all those kind of things and if we take certain measures to improve that our resilience to external influence maybe we can improve it by 10 15 percent if we're really good right like whereas the the outgunning is by thousands or tens of thousands of percent in terms of power of influence and depth and repetition yeah. and all that stuff so I think that there, there almost has to be an equivalent personal AI. Right. I can't remember who, I, th I think it's, I think Musk is talking about each person having their own almost AI defender that um, <laughs> is the, the counterbalance to all of these external influences. And it's going to have to require this arms race. Uh, yeah, I reject that. I think just turn off your phone. That's, that's the like quickest way isn't it just at source yeah i mean it, otherwise it's just gonna you know there's the you know the cops get body armor the bad guys get armor piercing rounds like you, you can keep doing that or you can just step out of the game entirely and i think you know that's that's part of the reason i think mindfulness is so important and why philosophy is also so important because you learn how to get out of the game and i think it gets actually probably more important i am going to probably end up building people their own personal ais but it's not going to be defend against other things <laughs> it's going to be to, I yeah, to influence the amount of data and just bullshit going on and how do you sift through it. So I remember you saying last time that there's probably going to be a divergence of two directions people go over the next five years. They either just go 
fully offline or just fully plug themselves in and just embrace it. I think it's going to be a forking. So I think it's going to be, I think human beings fundamentally are shifting into different species. So it's going to be people who are super, I mean, there's going to be the biohacking and the people who are genetically manipulating themselves and, you know, really cyborging themselves, I think. Um, and then there's going to be the people who just kind of go with the flow and wherever the main is main flow of sapiens becoming whatever it is like, you know, Deus or whatever. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Harari, who I think is kind of like an evil, evil genius. Um, uh, or yeah, like just becoming peak sapiens and being very crunchy, but still not, uh, I mean, in the world, but not of it kind of, you know, Right. on that note, what are you most excited about? So the things that I'm most excited about, I feel are a bit more flimsy. I think they have a more narrow window where I can enjoy them before it blasts right past us and then no longer becomes enjoyable so (laughs) maybe that's pessimistic but i think the ability to ask my second brain a question we're basically there with that that i can collect a bunch of notes and highlights from books and rather than having to sift through them myself i can ask it questions and converse with it obviously the risk of that is if it becomes too good you're prone to sort of digital dementia where you no longer rely on any internal memory in your own brain and uh, that side of things atrophies the other aspect which again we're seeing just the beginnings of working functionally is ai powered appointment setters and sales reps and possibly even service delivery Um, there is a company i forgot the name of it which does very realistic sounding voice synthesis combined with text recognition speech recognition and it just converses with you. So it can sell you an insurance package and sound like a natural conversation with a person. Obviously then it opens up the ethical questions of, is it worth telling the prospect that this is AI that they're speaking to, or just say, oh yeah, it's a, you're just speaking to our team. So what we're doing here is we're, we're, it's allowing us to produce a better product or service for our clients at least for the next few months but then there is a certain point where it's probably going to replace us like why why do i think that i'm particularly special as a business operator surely that role can also be done much better and faster and more efficiently than i can just because it's moving up the layers of a certain role within an organization i'm thinking oh but it's fine because i'm safe and i can use it to use it to my advantage i can instrumentalize the ai but surely being a business operator isn't as complicated as I might like to think. It's the same, the same. I, so I, I also had some time to think about this beforehand. Um, John tipped me off. Usually coast to coast, uh, bandwidth coast to coast is an improv session. And you just have to spitball <laughs> off the top of your, top your, your dome. But I... Um, I thought about this too, and that's one of the ones I came up with too, um, Yusef. And I think it's a double-edged sword also, and also I think it's too soon to tell, but I just think generally the opportunity for that, I don't think most people in the world benefit from or can benefit from, but there's certainly a a significant section of the middle-class people in developed countries that are able, that will that will benefit from things like just all the kind of basic business 
process business operations and things you, like so bookkeeping accounting uh, product development product delivery uh, service support sales marketing um, all that stuff becomes easier to do with the same um, level of professionalism and polish that before it took a lot more money to achieve so the barrier to entry i think for um like the middle class business world is significantly reduced um so that smaller companies or even individuals can compete somewhat um with with big companies with lots of capital and lots of assets so um i think there's i think that's great i think um there's a flip side to that too um but in terms of in terms of replaceability question that you raised too, which is also another consideration, I um, I'm skeptical. I don't know. I'm skeptical of I'm skeptical of certain dominions of um, like human ability to be re replicable or replaceable. Um, I know I, I listen to I find Mark Andreessen pretty interesting on the subject of AI, and he was um, talking about how white collar workers jobs are generally can be the delivery of the work they do can be accelerated by a thousand. I think he just made that number up, but he made it, he makes making a point. Um, and that there's a kind of, um, counterintuitive, uh, like, like, uh, job security susceptibility on the part of white collar workers, as opposed to, you know, been forecasted that it would, it would be blue collar workers that would be more susceptible to job loss. But I don't, I don't know about that because I just don't know if this particular type of AI that's we're talking about mostly generative. AI, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's there yet. It doesn't seem like it's just has the, the capacity. Um, you know, part of it's looking at the, like the, the amount of energy it consumes compared to what a human brain consumes. And part of it's just cha-cha. Part of it's just the, just in its inherent abilities aren't, aren't so good. I mean, I think like thinking about how long would it take before an LLM could replace Andreessen in his day job as a venture capitalist? Because if he really thinks that white collar jobs are in danger, then why, why, why wouldn't he just have an LLM do his job? So I think there's a, I think there's a ways to go. Um, I see it in my work. I see it with um, writing in particular. Uh, AI is pretty bad at writing and design also. And um, I think there's more to the human brain than we know. I don't think, I don't think traditional computing is a good metaphor. Maybe we'll, our brains are more like quantum computers or there's at least some aspects of the way that our brains work that's similar to how qu quantum computing is supposed to work. So, um, which is maybe why we're so much more efficient, um, like uh, calorie per calorie or unit of energy per unit of energy than, than computing is in general. So um, I'm, I'm going off on a few tangents there, but I, 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 definitely, I definitely think there's a, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity for the automation of lots of rules-based repetitive work that, that will let small, you know, solopreneurs and, and smaller businesses and smaller entities without lots of capital compete for more a bigger share of opportunities 
So that I think that's pretty cool, and I do think that'll I think that'll stick around. But there's definitely um, some issues there too. Yeah, I think I'm gonna try to tie everything you just said together. Uh, so I do think white collar work is gonna get smashed really hard, and the reason I think that is because kind of like the point I was making before, where I think we're expecting humans to do a lot of jobs that are actually suited for machines. Yeah. And we've just taken the assembly line model of work in a factory and we've moved it into an office building with fluorescent yeah. lights and no sunlight and fixed hours and say, you know sedentary lifestyle. Um, I think there's a lot of jobs out there that are white collar that are more or less some fashion of data entry, uh, process flows, double checking, um, really menial things that people have yeah. to slip into a state of hypnosis in order to be able to do which I do think are going to get absolutely smashed by this. Um, and I think right. to the point of what we're saying, um, I think large companies sticking with complexity get bloat. They, they get ever more processes yeah. that are needed. They get ever more bureaucratic. And right now I do think individuals, cohorts, cohorts of teams could come in and smash their market share right now with the help of, of AI. And I, I'm very excited for that. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm quite a bit anarchistic, so I, I really like that idea. Um, I think whole industries are going to completely change and have a hard time keeping up because they don't know how to react. I mean, it's an oil taker versus a bunch of speedboats coming, um, which I think is going to be really interesting. Um, you know, and I, I, I do worry about people being able to adapt to that, obviously. <laughs> I'm not just wanting the whole world to blow up. I, I worry about people's livelihoods uh, quite a bit more, I think, than anyone else in my profession, to be honest. Um, well, I'm not that arrogant. I'm sure there's people that do, but I openly talk about it, make people uncomfortable more than anyone I know. Uh, but I think uh, humans have been doing tasks that aren't well suited for them. And that's why they're, those white collar jobs, if it's accounting, I mean, accounting is just looking over forms and saying what is applicable and then processing data. I do think that that is, it's, it's, some people have a mind for it for sure. Um, I'm sure there's people that enjoy it, but on the whole, that is, it's not a very humanistic task. Um, and I think things that humans do really well is, you know, emotionality, expression, creativity. I don't think computers are going to be able to keep up with us on that, which is why no one can do an LLM can't do Mark Andreessen's job. Um, but an LLM can do an accountant's job. Uh, it, it could do a radiologist radiologist's job better than a radiologist now. Um, and I do think it's going to come for those. Um, I'm most excited about things that are not, that are not suited for this world that are now a part of our world, like the overwhelming influx of data, the overall, you know, complexity of things and having to, you know, AI that's going to be able to help with that. If it's asking a question of, here's a bunch of legal shit I don't understand. I don't, I can't afford a lawyer. Can you explain to me what I need to do and, and what this means? Um, or giving it a bunch of data and saying, can you help me understand this? Um, or the thing I tell everybody to do is, hey, you don't understand a concept at work um, or in your daily life or whatever it is. Um, go to GPT and ask it to explain it to you like you're five using Sesame Street characters. And the one that I always say is, if you don't know what quantum entanglement is, go to chat GPT and say, explain quantum entanglement to me as if there's Sesame characters and then use that format for whatever it is. And it's, it's going to help you get up to speed. Um, now what you do with that information, how you apply it to your daily life, what 
thoughts of come from the ether of the hologram that is our cosmos or you know whatever you want to call subconscious or whatever that is it comes to you that's what's going to be the the secret sauce to to humanity but uh that was my attempt at trying to take your mosaic and put it into a complete picture (laughs) no yeah it was a really it was a really good it was a really good uh summary um you said what i was trying to say a lot more uh articulately because I, yeah, I mean, I think the examples I gave, I think fit with, I think, I think white collar is the wrong term. And that's why I think I gave the examples of creative work, design and writing. It's just, um, yeah, it's just too complicated. And too I think this is where I'm the most cautious because from a personal perspective, I want that to be true because the biggest balls ache, ball aches in my life are things like accounting and all of the admin stuff that I'm thinking surely an AI could do this, but it's, I, I don't know how high the ceiling is. And if I open the door to that, I mean, I realize it's out of my control anyway, we're just getting steamrolled regardless. But um, internally, I'm thinking if, if I'm wishing that to be true, am I also wishing for the total replacement of, of me and all opportunity? Uh, I guess the optimist would say that, yes, there will be some opportunity removed, but there will also be a thousand more created and we're even seeing that just with people who know how to use the GPT interface and, and sort of arbitraging that to other people, which boggles my mind because I don't think it could be any simpler. Like you talk to a thing and yet that's still, there's a huge industry of SaaS products that are just overlays for GPT, isn't there? So, um, you know, maybe the, maybe I'm thinking too small scale. Maybe. All right. I'm going to do this a couple of times. I'm going to switch the aperture. I'm going to ask another question and then we're going to come back to a similar line of thought. All right. So I'm going to define what AI is and then I'm going to ask you another question. So um, I've been doing stuff with AI since 2015, I think. Um, and the first thing I started doing it was with an AI called Psych, C-Y-C. Uh, you could look, look it up on Wikipedia. It was the Department of Defense Artificial Intelligence, which I think it was originally used to track ballistic missiles. And then they started having it teaching it with uh, ornithologists, people who uh, study the, the meaning of things, um, and started teaching, teaching, quote-unquote teaching it, all these other things. The definition of artificial intelligence then versus now is totally different, actually, and it's one of those terms uh, uh, like injectables that have been evolving over time of what they actually mean. Um, so uh, what I'm going to give is is what I think is the, the most broad and useful one. It's, it's not very technical. So... Artificial intelligence is using computers to do tasks that are normally done by humans. Now, there's the slippery slope of what's, you know, machine learning and all that, but I, I'm just going to use that term so it could be most broad. Uh, I think it's most useful. It's actually a term that through a series of dialogues with GPT, I came, I came down to, which is hilarious to me. Um, now, do you believe the hype with artificial intelligence. Right now, GPT is staring us in the face, but obviously people, and even in this conversation, we're talking about brainwave manipulation, using Wi-Fi routers to to catch you if you're cheating or whatever it is that you may be able to do with it. Um, do you believe the hype in AI? I feel like tacitly, you both have said yes because of your fears, um, but do you believe the hype? Like the, go ahead. So, 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 sorry, Rowan. Um, if the, if by hype is does it live up to its definition of computers doing tasks that were previously done by humans 
then yeah, I think that's quite a low bar. But it's to what degree, what percentage, and what do we do with the freed up time and opportunity? Okay, so even tacitly, you're, you're kind of saying something there that I'm gonna I'm gonna pick apart a little bit. So by hype, I'll define hype now. Um, definition of AI was to give us a level playing field. Hype right now is that oh my god, the world of computers is taking over. Uh, GPT is everywhere. It's going to complete revolutionize business. Uh, all these jobs are going to go away. People's lives are going to be different. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Uh, it's kind of overwhelmingly del- you know, deluging you. I mean, the only social media I use anymore is LinkedIn because I only want to cultivate my, you know, the ways I can make money so I can get out of using LinkedIn to make money. Um, and that is insanely converged with people talking about GPT. Um, I go, you know, if you go on YouTube, it's it's like that. I have all these different YouTube accounts so that my feeds uh, are different on each one of them because I know the algorithm is constantly trying to learn. It'll still come up on there if it's guitar pedals um, or anything else. It, it, it seems also from what I do in the business world and venture capital world, you if you if you do something with AI, you're going to get a fuck ton of money, and that's about all that's getting money right now. <laughs> um, so, do you believe the hype? Meaning, do you believe that this is a revolution that's happening and unfolding? right now uh, okay so yeah i mean if you if the goal is to get a fuck ton of money and ride ride the wave then yeah we're in a bull run might as well jump on the hype train and and you know get get the investor capital do do whatever you need to but do i truly believe that... is it a raising of the ocean or is it a tidal wave uh, yeah <laughs> good question well it and well are we talking about it in its current form or the fact that it's it's still it's accelerating at faster paces as well. Like if we bake in the future development of it, then yeah, I think it's it's going to be very powerful. I think right now, GPT particularly is simultaneously overestimated and underestimated for different purposes, and I think it's the big distractor for probably more powerful machine learning models that are actually going on. But I guess because GPT is the most tangible and graspable and usable by, by consumers, it's won people's hearts and minds. Like chat GPT, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think, I believe, I mean, there's, there's two levels of, of hype or probably at least two levels of hype that, that, um, I'm aware of. And I think about, there's one that I don't believe at all, which is the, the, the idea that, um, I don't really take seriously the idea that, that, um, AI in its current state would like, uh, enslave humanity, um, by itself or become like, like sentient beings or something. Um, so I don't believe that hype. I do believe the the hype that which says that that over the next well, this is not so much hype, but like I believe the the reasonable hype. Uh, I believe in reasonable hype is is a general rule in life. Um, but specifically, <laughs> I, I, I you know I think there's a reasonable but hyped view that AI will have a really big impact on the digital economy which is a bigger and bigger share of the world's economy, but not all of it by any means. I definitely believe that. I think, I mean, I, I saw that happen with the internet. There was a lot of internet hype and it, it definitely came true. I mean, it definitely changed um, the business world significantly. Um, I mean, it, 
it, it ended up being mostly monopolized by really large companies in terms of the total revenue, which is what some people predicted, like Andrew Keene, you know, who wrote books about that. And I think that's probably what's going to happen here. And that was actually one of the, my, my other meta concerns that I kind of thought about coming into this was the, and that's the trade-off is it's the ability of really large firms to um, leverage their capital and their de facto monopolies on computing resources and also just um, like the ability to spend, to invest capital in the digital world. Um, so the, the, you know, the big tech companies basically. So I, I, but I believe the hype that it's going to change, uh, it's going to change the economy a lot. And I think it's going to affect um, the job market and it will create some opportunity. Um, it's not going to create opportunity for most people, actually, at least not in terms of the business world. I think if there's anywhere that it, would, it, would, it can create a lot, a lot of opportunity, it's in education. But even there, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, it's curious to me how much I disagree with that, actually. Uh, I believe the hype probably more than the average person, even the average person within the field. Now, I don't believe the hype of what Sam Altman likes to talk about. I think that guy's a clown and it's very amusing to me. I think he's dangerous because of how well he speaks and his position of authority. But uh, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty much an anarchist. I don't believe in authority. So uh, I think authority is really dangerous. Um, that all as a preface, um, I believe the hype insofar as I think it's going to absolutely change everything, um, which is also why I get so concerned about it. So are you all familiar with like the Copernican revolution? So the earth is at the center of the universe, uh, this, uh, the, or the, even the solar system, the sun is, and then how that changed everything in astronomy and, you know, really physics and philosophy and everything that kind of came from that. I think that's where we are right now. Uh, I don't think that the current form of AI is going to be the form that is utterly changing everything. But I think already what we have is enough. Um, I think it's enough to change our culture in ways that I worry about. You know, uh, I think it's definitely enough to be able to give birth to the next revolution. So right now, like, I think the biggest constraint you brought it up before Rowan, um, is the amount of resources it takes. So, you know, the GPU, like the only reason that GPT can run is because people said, oh, we can run it on GPUs that were originally made for shooter games and things like that, which happened to be great architecture to be able to, you know, run these giant models. And now we can stream five different models or five different GPUs together to make the models bigger and bigger and bigger. And we can distribute those models across those to be able to run something as big as GPT four or even three. So it's, it's ever diminishing. I think our rate of return on the current form that we're running AI, but I think we might be able to use this AI to think of new ways and prompting, you know, and building other algorithms to say, what's a better architecture for a chip. What's a better way of doing this or like things that Mishu Kaku talks about, like uh, uh, quantum computers and what you're going to be able to do with AI and quantum, I think is, is quite scary. Um, and I do think the average person is actually going to have a much lower barrier of entry to be able to come in here. I do worry about, you know, tech companies or, you know, uh, legacy capital being able to really come in and 
assert themselves because they have so much of a head start. But I mean, even the the leaked uh, Google memo of saying, "Oh, uh, we actually have no competitive moat that open source is is catching up." I think that's only going to keep happening more and more and more and more. Um, now, the the flip side of that that I worry about is, I think people are going to have a harder and harder time not distracting themselves away from that very thing of being able to distract themselves away from realizing, oh my God, there's so much opportunity. If I have an idea, I can capitalize on it. Um, I can learn about things. I can use this to you know, catch up to other things if it's in the digital services realm, if it's building a new product, um, if it's coming up with a new idea, uh, it's, it's going to be harder to not distract yourself away from yeah you know there's something there's something to that definitely and i've i've um i oscillate on this you know i oscillate on on i mean there's the 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 um the trick about your question is there's there is lots of different kinds of hype out there um so maybe each of us answered a different question in that sense um in terms of the like society-wide impacts there is there is something there's something theoretical, but I, I don't know. I, I can't really grasp it and maybe you can better, but there's something about the idea that, that, um, as, as, as beings, as animals that have really powerful and really de developed language compared to other animals. Um, and in a, in a theoretical reality where language is, rather than being a communication technology, it's primarily a, a thinking technology for how we like un understand and process information as, as animals that survive and, and prosper. If, if that's the world, if that's the, if that's, if that's what we're coming into this with, with, with um, language being this inborn, extremely powerful technology. And now we, if we have an external technology that connects to that and empowers that, and if everything we want in the world and everything we like and want and all the people we like and all the things and all the memories and everything that there is in the universe that is appealing to us, if it's all describable in language. And if we have a tool that can understand that language and then get it for us and retrieve it for us and change it and do something with it. I mean, in theory, yeah, that should be, that should be like a Copernican revolution. It should, it should completely change our paradigm. So I, I think theoretically, I, I see that. I just don't see how that's playing out right now. And I remember the internet hype. I was in the dot-com boom and it was actually way bigger than the AI hype, much, much bigger, I would say, just the overall impact on society. And there was a massive impact. I mean, it did have a massive impact. It's, if you think of like other technological hype cycles that we've been through, cloud computing, social media, mobile, the internet was much bigger than those. And um, it was, I think, deservedly so. I think um, the AI hype is like, it, it, it gets lost. It gets lost in the doomerism, the ridiculous sci-fi doomerism. It gets lost in the onslaught of just social media stuff and all the kind of like bullshit stuff that comes out about generative AI. But yeah, if you think about it, John, I think you're right. I think there is there is like really serious potential for profound change in our society. 
and even in our species. I just, I don't, I'm not as good as you at imagining how that's going to play out. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just a different human than you. That's why. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to change the aperture again, uh, which actually dovetails really well with what you just said. Are we ever going to be able to trust anything online from here going forward? What do you think, Yusuf? You, you live your life online more than us. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this today when I clicked on a dodgy link in an email and my phone face recognition just logged me in to that. And I was like, oh, okay, it must be the right thing. It's taken that decision out of my hands. I know no, I no longer have to be that idiot that puts my details into a fake password because my password manager has some kind of digital verification or pass key and combination of all that to verify that I am on the right thing. So in many cases, we remove the exploits by removing the the stupid human in the middle of these situations where we have to worry about being able to trust something. So I, I, I'm less concerned about that because I just think every time a new level of deep fake comes out or whatever, that there will be some smart person that's also made a verification process. Um, it just means that that there will be a certain point, there'll be a, a crossover, like our parents, who are all from the generation where standard main media news outlets were the trustworthy source because the BBC, well, if they said it, they must have to put the work in and oh, well, it's in the newspaper, so it has to be true. That kind of mindset is a, a hangover that no one our age and below believes because we've seen it being exploited over the last 10 years and people, you know, using the, um, running on the laurels of their, of their previous reputation or looking like a news outlet to be able to just say whatever. So there's a generational gap, like the older people will believe anything they see in, in a news outlet because it looks legit. Younger people won't. And I think there's going to be the similar thing where we are now the, the people who will believe most things because they look legit and then one generation below us will just be slightly wiser to it or that whole verification process will be taken out of our hands because it would be too difficult for a human to discern the difference. Yeah, you froze that the, the verification prog uh, process will be taking it out of our hands, which I think is what you were saying. Ah, uh, that's a shame. So yeah, the, essentially, once that verification process is taken out of our hands, we we won't need to know the difference because it, it'll be too, maybe fake information or fake data will be too hard for a human to discern. And so we can then just hand, hand over that decision entirely. Rowan, what do you think? Do you think we'll be able to trust everything online? Um, some people will and some people won't. Um, I think already for 20 years, people have been fooled by fake images photoshop you know i i just listened to um I, there was a episode of um are you guys familiar with seth godin he has a podcast called akimbo and he did an episode in march that i listened to when it came out and i wasn't really sure if it was him talking when i listened to it and at the end he's like that wasn't me it was a voice clone and i just went back and listened to it yesterday and it was completely obvious it was a voice clone to me. I could just tell that it was AI. So, and I didn't, that, that's just something that's happened gradually. My, my sensors have improved 
so I do think people are going to get much, much better, everybody, um, imperceptibly better, uh, unnoticeably better at detecting authenticity, whatever that looks like, like humanity, like humanity coming through digital mediums. And again, it goes back to this, this idea that our brains are, that we're not like, our brains are a lot more sophisticated than like the computing, the traditional computing model. There's something different about how, how we, how we think and work. And they're more, they're way more sophisticated than large language models. So, um, I think we're going to get better. Some people, everyone's going to get a little bit better at detecting fakery. A lot of people will continue to be deceived, <laughs> but not me. <laughs> it's never us. Yeah, uh, it's, never, it's never me. Uh, I actually, okay. So my thoughts on this is that we shouldn't be, delu- we shouldn't be believing anything online anymore anyways. Uh, if it's, we already passed that point. Oh, 100%. We've been past that point for 15 years. Um, no, I mean, think of it. Like, how many people are actually real on the internet? You know, I mean, you, you, 2016 election kind of brought it all out into the fold. Like, oh my God, there's all these bot armies. Well, dude, there was people that were just doing that to fuck with people way before that. Um, I mean, there was people making fake profiles with taking people's images and duplicating them i mean there was that was already happening i mean catfish was already a show on mtv like this was already happening i think the signal to noise on that is going to go up so much with ai being able to say hey here's a bunch of people's um posts give me another post that sounds like them um Mm -hmm. and and i think that's going to make the the deluge of shit we can't trust on the internet so much so much so much worse um but i think we're already we've already been past that point it's just going to make it more obvious um so i think it's going to make it more difficult uh, especially with being able to like the thing i always laugh about is how easy it's going to be to fool people with politicians and just have a politician just like going off the rails like nancy pelosi talking about like how much she actually has like a an arsenal of weapons or something like someone's just going to do that to just make make a joke out of it and then there's going to be a day or an hour where people believe it and because of what we are as beings that might stick with us and think that, you know, that person is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. Now, oh, are we going to say something to that? No, I'm just thinking about it. Um, just- given that, do you guys think that AI can help us with the absolute abundance of information that's out there? So Stephen Hawking has this thing where he says the 20th century was the age of information 21st century is going to be the age of complexity. He was really talking about, you know, physics and, and kind of the, the physics impact on uh, the economy and, you know, the world writ large. I'm talking about it more in information's gotten, we've already gotten more and more information every day. I mean, it's probably two thirds of the day now. There's more data that's created than the whole world before that. Yeah, are, are we going to be able I, to use AI to traverse that? I think we're already seeing, again, the start of that. So my google bard recently just said it's going to integrate with gmail so i can then ask my gmail inbox a question as well um very useful saying hey what are the five top priority items or what are the deadlines coming up whatever and it can just give me that on a plate so effectively acting like a personal assistant but i think language models surely that's where their strength lies is in the summarization it's in the synthesizing of information 
it has the corpus and i guess the next step is for it to be able to s summarize passages of text that are more than 2000 words or wh whatever the current limit is i'm sure that's i'm sure that's possible uh, john i know we we talked about there's probably technical limitations to that that are um, beyond what i what, what i can think of um but yeah there's probably there's like this ballooning out of information over the last 50 years and then maybe it's going to come back down into being able to identify what are the salient points and get ai to serve that to us on a plate rowan as you said i guess the problem with that is that our brains are still the rate limiting factor they're still the step that we can try our best to be more studious and improve our working memory and be able to handle more information but like they're not that plastic in a single generation's span yeah yeah but i i, I agree with you that that is um that's what that's probably the most useful probably the most useful um practically useful uh feature of LLM AI is technology is what you said it's is one of I mean they're all kind of the same thing but if you think about summarization reductionism distillation extraction um, uh, they're sort of similar but different they're a little bit different and you can actually kind of um, you know in the, the way you use AI you can you can orient what you're trying to do or the information you're getting towards those those models they're all like related to reducing something which that all helps that which lets them all help the problem the 20th century problem you mentioned john of of information overload i think the other broad category of, of usefulness is just categorization there's lots of kinds of categorization that, that ai can do for us and I think translation is another one, and not just from one language to another, but translating from one format to another, one structure to another, um, and programming that happens in coding, that's like a really common use case. You like take a bunch of, take a list of stuff in one programming language and then give it to me in another, another programming language or structure. Um, or or you even do the that. ideas, like I was saying at the beginning, give me quantum exactly. physics as Sesame characters. Yeah. Yeah. So in all that, all that stuff, um, contributes to the thing that I think Yusuf and I were both excited about, which is like the, the potential for, um, the potential for little people to fare better, um, in the business world because of the, these, these having these tools at their disposal, which, which, um, let them compete with, with, with bigger organizations that currently, as you mentioned, John, are just employing armies of, of, uh, rule followers you know process followers so um yeah so but you know i think you know you, you i mean your concern yusuf is that our brands are a limiting factor it's true um yeah we we um we do need personal we need um customized assistance for each of us and I, and that's, and that's why I think one of the most exciting potentials for this, this kind of AI for generative AI and is education because it's, um, that's something that pretty much every human, uh, experiences or needs to experience. 
and it's something that um, it, the opportunity is there to get away from standardized education, from formulaic education, from curriculum designed by people who aren't actually even teaching um, to um, personalize and customize um, subject matter according to what a student is interested in for education to be very low cost and to happen throughout your lifetime and to let people go really broad and really deep without um, being exposed to rules and advertisements and distraction. Um, so I, I'm kind of, I change the subject a little bit, but I do think that's, I did, I, I think that's one of the, I guess one of the, for me personally, that's been the, maybe the nicest thing about using, um, using AI a lot over the last year, using ChatGPT and also Claude, um, which is, is, um, being able to explore stuff without seeing ads or being distracted by mm. competing interests, stuff that someone else is interested in, in me learning about that I don't want to learn about. It's nice. Um, that's interesting because there's a classroom model. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's a lot of conversations of is GPT or GPT like interface going to crush search? You know, being able to actually mm -hmm. search for things and seeing a list versus asking it something, which is interesting because in its current permutation, which hopefully doesn't have an analogous uh, relationship with the early internet. Like, I mean, I think all of us are, are uh, able to remember the internet when it first started or was in its infancy and there was no ads anywhere. And then all of a sudden there was the pop-up phase yeah. where it was just oh, yeah. maddening and there was like nothing you could do and you, you know, you couldn't do anything and there wasn't browsers that could do ad blocking. It was just, there was just nothing you could do. And then every corner of the, this, the space that, of the website was just flashing different things. Um, <laughs> I hope that that's not what GPT or, you know, that dialogue like interface becomes. Yeah. I bought so many penis enlargement pills. <laughs> I've just run out of cash now. You, yeah, you have a it, massive hog. <laughs> oh yeah. That room just next door was piled high. The, it's, it's the problem because like, I guess once they introduced the regulation, then now it's the pop-up phase in 2023 is you know accept cookies or reject these ones analytical ones but not advertising. yeah you can thank it. europe for that thank you guys yeah i know bloody hell <laughs> um i i think rowan that's, that's a great point about education being possibly the the most disrupted industry in five or ten years if if you you can't replace if, if you can replace a, a curriculum and a teacher and everything of like a blanket education system with is a personalized like problem by problem infinitely patient tutor that you can deal with and then maybe have an account manager who kind of jumps in if if need be yeah the the other aspect of um is it going to replace search i guess it's kind of the same principle and now that bard and gpt are, are starting to roll out inline links to websites it's it seems like the next step because you search for something and you it's effectively simulating a web surf 10 minutes of web surfing you know you you type in a question it generates a paragraph of text here's three sources here's the link it's just done all of the crunching for you 
uh, I guess the thing that it can't replace in that is the experience when you land on the website. Maybe there's a particular visual or video or design experience that can't be replaced by a chat interface. And so it's not going to completely destroy websites and SEO. No, it might just optimize for the model now. What were you going to say, Ron? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. I, I definitely see, um, I definitely see uh, uh, this kind of AI as, as not, it's a useful database, but it's sort of like a proxy database for the better databases out there. So it's much better to go to the site and to the original data source. Maybe the original data source is just metaphorically speaking, um, you know, you're prompting about uh, a certain kind of wildflower and the, the original database is go to this meadow and walk around there outside by yourself and look at what's around you. And that that's the original source of the data, but you got the idea to go there because you were talking to ChatGPT on your phone or, or wherever you were on your device. So I, I think it's a really good point. I don't, I don't think it's, 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 it brings in tons of useful information. It's sort of like a, it's like a user interface for all of the data that's out there in the world. And I think your job is to go out into the world beyond LLM data and get better stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn off the phone, like I was saying earlier. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I wanna tie in a couple of concepts. So I wrote this article of uh, what are models so what is a model? Um, and I'll summarize it here, which is a model. So GPT is an AI model. It's just a database. So it was fed a bunch of information to create a new form of database that's based off of all of that information. And the way it traverses it is it goes through every possible um, breakdown of that, given the number of breakdowns it is. So think of a piece of graph paper and a stack of graph paper. Each piece of uh, each intersection point on the graph paper between the lines is one of the points of information it said this is the possibility of what can be created from the information you were trained on and then how it stacks together and you ask it a question and so you go through each of those pieces of paper and it's going to alter the answer each time until it gets what it thinks is the best so it's a database that runs information through it's based off of the information that is and it's static um, these these uh, models are stack static now, okay, so I'm gonna hold that in your mind real quick because I'm gonna tie it into this uh, education idea and then I'm gonna go back to it. There's a really great episode, I'm gonna send both of you, um, of Theo Vaughn's podcast that I'm going through. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, it's with this philosopher, uh, this Canadian philosopher named John Verveke. Never heard of him before. Um, very fascinating. And one of the things he talks about in there is autodidacts. So people who teach themselves, of which I'm definitely an autodidact. Uh, and... What he says in there that I've never heard before, which is being able to teach yourself is amazing, but you fall prey to your own biases and you end up perpetuating your own way of thinking because you're not getting challenged from other people. Now, mm -hmm. what, you know, personally, what I didn't realize I do until I heard him was I learn as much as I can. And then I go to try to talk to experts in that field. So like, I'm really into fitness and really into nutrition. Yusuf, you and I have talked about that. Uh, and you're most certainly an expert in that. Um, you know, uh, literature or marketing, same thing with that. Rowan, you're definitely an expert in both of those things. Now, what I worry about with these models is us teaching ourselves, because I do think 
AI and just the cacophony of information and the people that are making content out there is going to make most technical degrees, with the exception of some, kind of obsolete. And I think we actually are already there. So what I worry about, mm -hmm. though, is our own individual biases striking the way that we interact with these uh, models, which reinforce them. Because the other thing is, is that these models, from the way that they work, of structuring information in, it's trying to get the best score of what it thinks you want, not necessarily what it actually knows. So like that Socrates thing of like, what is wisdom? All I know is that I know nothing. The model will never tell you it doesn't know something because it's biased towards pleasing you and biased in the information that it was gathered. One last thing, and then Yusuf, I see you're pregnant with thought. <laughs> uh, Falcon LLM is a large language model that was made by a cohort. I think they're in Qatar. If, if you ask it questions about the Middle East, it's not going to give you necessarily true answers in the way that a Western audience would expect, right? Like if you start asking questions about Qatar, it may not be giving you the answers you'd be suspecting because it's biased in the information it was trained on. So I worry about the interplay between our own personal biases, structuring the way that we interact with these you know, essentially, I guess what I'm saying is I think humans are still going to need to be there uh, to help guide the process. Um, but it's going to be able to dupe us into thinking they don't need to be. And Yusuf, you get the That's ball. That's such an interesting thought that it's giving you what you think you want. It's trying to please you. I'd never thought about it like that. That's literally Whenever what it's hard to do. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And that's going to keep you on platform, isn't it? If that's the KPI they're, they're aiming for. Well, so not even the KPI. So I don't want to stop on you. I just want to clarify. Uh, it's what the model was trained to do. So mm -hmm. how these models work is they run through the process of the data of however it was inputted and structured and trained to expect. And then it gives itself a confidence score. And that confidence score is how right do I think this answer is? Now, the reason that you can ask the same question to GPT and different answers can keep coming out or subtleties of it is because if you look at that graph paper again, there's many different combinations that, that it can go flow from one to another to another. And the subtle differences in language, like uh, I'm going to go burn my house down, <laughs> could be sarcastic. It could be literal. You know, there's different mm -hmm. ways you can interpret that. Um, and that can alter the confidence scores and when it comes out. But what it's meant to do is serve the question, the prompt as much best as possible. So it's not necessarily the KPI of what OpenAI wants. It's actually fundamental to the model itself to try to give you the best answer that it thinks you want. Right, which then explains the hallucinations. Yes. It explains the, when, have you ever asked GPT about a decision you're trying to make and you give it the information to say based on this what's the best decision and it's always super non-committal and the moment that you have a slight inclination towards one or the other it goes yes i think that is a reasonable suggestion because uh -huh. based on that you're like I, you've just told me what i've told you there or what i wanted to hear um i guess it's that this autodidact point is is very relevant to this i'm a big fan of viveki as well he that it's the difference between a journaling practice and seeing a therapist that a therapist oh. even though they are designed to be very non-reactive and so on they'll still call you out on your bullshit and gently guide you and show you the mirror of where your blind spots are but if you're journaling you could just be looping and looping on your own without seeing the bigger picture 
That is an excellent analogy. Mm -hmm. It's a scary one because I think anyone who's had a long-standing journaling practice, it's like you can achieve a lot of personal growth from it, but you could end up looking like a pie chart with a big slice taken out of it because you've then reinforced your own biases and uh, take somebody else outside of your worldview to come in and slap you with the the cosmic truth. <laughs> <laughs> Slapping with cosmic truth. That's the title of the episode. I like that a lot. Uh, okay. Switching the aperture again. We were talking about this a little bit more and I want to throw in uh, some research that came up um, of, you know, our white collar workers going to be the demised. Um, so there was a study that was done recently and what it came out with is that uh people who use generative ai particularly gpt4 were roughly 40 percent more efficient um however and this is a direct quote the diversity of ideas among participants who use gpt4 for the creative product innovation task was 41 percent lower compared with the group that did not use the technology so they were 40 percent more efficient but over time they were a little bit more than equal to that less creative. Now, I personally think it has to do with the model. So the model was trained on certain information. It's going to give you certain information back. It's almost like groupthink, but it's distilling the groupthink to think again of what you were saying, Rowan. It's distilling all the information back down and it's distilling that groupthink and baking in that in uh, to the responses and kind of like Google Maps, no one knows how to get anywhere anymore because it's, it's offloading that to us. You know, we're offloading productivity to it and the you know, mm -hmm. the double-edged sword is that we're getting creativity back. So what are your guys' thoughts on more efficiency, less creativity, double-edged sword? Is it going to destroy office workers or is it going to make them more productive, less creative? Yeah, and that goes back to the question, the, the question of what, what do we mean by office workers and what do we mean by white-collar workers? And um, the, the degree to which the distinction between one one group and another group is related to the level of creativity that their job requires. Um, I think there's the potential for creative work in almost every kind of job in the world, including every kind of white collar job, depending on lots of different things that come into it, the formulation of the company, the people, the projects that are happening. Um, I think some accountants might be creative thinkers and do creative work and some might not be at all, for example. Um, so yeah, so um, it's not just uh, distinctly or, or uh, it's not just uh, roles that are thought of as creative or have creative in their name or title that are, that, um, that entail, entail creative work, but um yeah, it's, I think I think the, the, the I think the challenge is um, use like figuring out how to how to use it to do rules based repetitive work that you come up with every day without letting it um, replace your own your own creative processes that you that are, you can come up with in your brain because those are certainly with this technology, at least, the human brain is far superior in terms of creativity. At least it seems seems that way in my experience, um, because 
because um, I mean the 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 best the most obvious use case is is generating words like what we think of as writing because I mean it's as you know it's the the big models that's why it's so interesting interesting to try out different models and see how different models differ from Chat GPT and and OpenAI's uh, GPT three point five and GPT four even through the API just to see how things are different um, because. Um, if you look at the the training set, like the um, like the C four training set, the common training set, and you can just see all the blogs and websites that all these Reddit posts and all you know the the like forty five thousand WordPress blogs. I mean, it's just trained on just such massive mediocrity. <laughs> it's, of course, of course, it's never. It's not like it's trained on only books written by Nobel Prize winning authors. You know, yes, that's the thing that, that that actually pains me. The the fact that it's trained on so much mediocrity and that it's not even like a bell curve. It's it's like very modal. Yeah. And so yeah. you're only going to get vanilla, plain writing, and stuff that's it all comes out the same. You know, it, it it's almost like so we we work with a lot of personal trainers who are moving online, they're not used to online marketing or writing or any, anything like that. Um, and it's a whole new venture for them. And so GPT is like the holy grail. Oh, great. I can just get it to write all my marketing for me. And they think that it's so, the, the ones who heavily use it think that they're really getting away with this, uh, this thing that no one can tell that they didn't write this, even though it's like a sore thumb. So I think you, it's a great point, Rowan, that actually like it's reframing the word the word creative or what we define as humans as creative in job is actually not the same overlap of what a generative ai might produce and to use it for 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 the the less tempting tasks um instead um i think maybe yeah. the common thread is mental effort i don't know if there's something that's maybe closer yeah. to the, the mark with that no, I think that is a commentary. I think it's a, it's mental it's mental efforts, work, labor. Yeah, it's obviously there's exceptions like the extraction, summarization, categorization stuff, but I suppose in a way summarizing is not it's not as much mental effort as true written generative stuff, is it? So yeah, I I'm, I'm struggling to try to sort of corner what is that human attribute that we should hold on to for dear life. Um, because when I look at my nephews and siblings and anyone who's younger and going into school now, I think, oh, like I'd hate to be going into the education system now when there's always just this like easy exit, like any essay assignment, anything could just be like, oh, just GPT it. And it'll be good enough. Um, and so there's never any incentive to really like mentally engage with the hard stuff i think not to be too esoteric esoteric uh i think consciousness is is the human quality and our, our unique capacity for it i mean you could be like i'm getting like loosely into young i haven't dove into him yet but i, I feel it coming um and you know you could say that it's like the subconscious but i mean I think that there is okay. All right, I talk about my guitar a lot. I play guitar because it just I just happen to have one next to me all day. Um, 
you can't replace learning the fundamentals of it. You can just take look up tabs and you can really you can learn how to play Sweet Home Alabama or Freebird or Jimi Hendrix and you can play that one song. You can play it really well, but it's kind of like a parlor trick. You're just learning how to play that one song. And if you're trying to play with other people um, or trying to even learn another song, um, you're pretty much starting from scratch again, right? So there's the information out there to just, I want to learn song by song by song. But if you learn the fundamentals, you can learn every song as opposed to just going one by one by one. And if you put in the effort to doing that, your subconscious also, when you're going about your daily life, is going to give you ideas of, oh, what if I do these little things? I wonder what that would sound like. And then you're going to sit down and play and you're going to have those little things. Like you can't replace the work. So you can now more easily, which is kind of what I was bringing up before, you can more easily fall into distractions and you know false ways of doing things like, oh, I'm just going to have GPT write my essay for me. Oh, this is so much easy. Like, look at this. And I think the human quality of not having it do that is that you, you can't replace the work of hammering out that frustrating aspect of how do I put my thoughts into words? And this is so difficult and it takes so much time. And the thing is, is if you don't replace that, because if you replace it, you're robbing yourself and you got to go through that pain. You can't escape suffering. So just go head forth, head forth into it, suffer, learn, because the human aspect of it is the subconscious or the consciousness of it or the holographic universe or the source energy or God or whatever you want to call it that's going to bring forth to you things that suddenly don't feel like they are you and that you can bring into creation. So like you can say humans are imaginative, humans are creative. Sure, I think all those things work, but I think really humans are conscious, which means we can toil, we can learn, we can get good at something. And then we go and try to do it ourselves. Something new is going to come out of it because of all of that, because of that uh, work that's been put in. If it's toiling over writing essays, if it's learning how to play the guitar, if it's learning proper fundamentals and exercising, and then being able to be stronger at something, uh, any number of things that you want to do. So, yeah, there's in every situation, there's the six minute abs equivalent. Yes. And people always want to do the, the easy option. And, you know, we're evolved that way to conserve energy trading no one wants to do boring fundamental analysis and look at the um the various fundamental factors in commodity prices they just want to look at charts on a page and draw a line here oh, okay that's going to go up and that's going to go down so that that's the the core thing and you know it's maybe not fair for us to blame language models on that because the world is always going to produce things that make it easier but it's maybe just going to increase the importance of i guess as rowan mentioned at the start like having a personal practice for us to improve our own resilience, our own skepticism, our own ability to sit with hard problems for a long time, um, our emotional stability, all these things, like as they're starting to get challenged and pushed about more, we have to learn that that's actually going to become one of the core skill sets of resisting those urges. Otherwise I do, I'm going to mention this last time and I, I'm, sound like I'm being apocalyptic, but I think like the day that we're all just plugged into VR headsets with a, a Bluetooth flashlight and a like I, IV burgers um, just being pumped into us and we're in this and we're all just like super fat and in this like floating <laughs> sphere. Um, I think that's going to happen. And like the only way to resist it is 
mental effort. It was like during the pandemic, you know, during lockdown. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of there's a, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, it? was a concert where everyone attended in a big plastic bubble. Oh, yeah. That was it, chain smokers or something like that? It wasn't chain smokers, but that era, maybe. But yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's, um, yeah. I mean, discomfort is is good right it's that's that's like the marcus aurelian viewpoint it's it's good to like be okay with the full range of experiences good and bad and that's being uncomfortable experience being able to experience hardship and that all that includes you know whatever whatever you know whatever you want to call it mindfulness or whatever other practice you have that um, makes you sort of just enjoy whatever comes up in your mind and uh, not try to find a quick a quick solution for it, but just to be like, fuck, sometimes, sometimes I feel shitty during the day or I'm, I deal with something difficult and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think what is that? that the importance is not necessarily to ask for an easy life, but the strength to endure a hard one. And and I think really what what I'm... I don't know. I don't know if it's unintentional or not. I mean, it's a conversation with me, so it's probably going to go into this, which is, I think we need a new philosophy. And I think we need a philosophy that is able to take in the best virtues of the old ones. If it's stoicism or, you know, I was just pulling from Buddhism, you know, everything is suffering or, you know, any number of things uh, and be able to adapt it for the ever easier life that we have now. Because I mean, at no point in human history has it been easier to survive a day, but also has it been never harder to choose things that are actually poisoning you you know like the the diseases that used to only be safe for the king because he was the only person that was able to eat sugar all day long and now it seems to be the one the far easier path for everyone to to kill themselves um and you know it's it's easier and cheaper to stay alive but it's 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 harder more complex and more expensive to actually thrive within it you know like i, th- I think there was a study that was done in, in actually positive it was the uk i can't remember when it was but I was looking at commuting times and, you know, back way back when no one commuted because everyone worked from home essentially, right. They were, where they worked in the, their plot of land, or if they had a, you know, they were blacksmith, their blacksmith shop was uh, in their house, you know, all of that, they, there was no commute. And then there was horses and then the commute got longer uh, because, you know, people had to ride horseback into town or something like that. Um, and then the commute time got shorter again because everyone had cars, but then everyone got cars. So the commute time got long again because of traffic. Um, and then they got trains and then the train commute time went down again, but then everyone was on the train and there wasn't enough trains. And the commute time you know, increased again. Then people moved to the suburbs and spread out. And, oh my God, the commute time went down again, but then everyone started doing and the roads weren't building fast enough and the commute time went up to the point where now the commute times that most people, well, now the pandemic is you know, post uh, COVID, it's a little different, but pre-COVID, the commute times that people were having on average was longer than it ever was in human history. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're really in this paradoxical time and being able to have some type of modality of thinking about it to be able to transcend it, I think is ever more important. Yeah, for sure. So the things that come up that occur to me from what you're saying, John, that are, are unique to, that are, I guess, related to the subject is the this concept of balancing intake and output 
Um, and one of the, you know, one of the benefits for me um, of writing a high frequency newsletter, which I've done at various points. Sometimes I did it daily for like over a year. And it just felt like this amazing counterbalance to this massive over onslaught of information being pushed into my head 24 seven constantly for years or even like almost like two decades. And then cutting, setting aside this time to push stuff out from me out into the world, um, focused around topics or subjects. Um, it just felt like really good, like mental exercise. So the thing, so, so there's, that's, that's one piece of it that, um, I think there's potential with, with, uh, language models because they, it's kind of relates to the concept of a executive sparring partner. This is sort of like a, it's a type of consulting work, like one-on-one -on -one consulting work at a fairly high level that some people practice where you essentially pair up with an executive and um, just act as an intellectual sparring partner and challenge them on all, the, all, their, all their thinking. Like you challenge all their premises and you challenge their decisions, you challenge their rationales, you train them to make good decisions quickly. And I think there's potential to use large language models as, as your own personal executive sparring partner. And I think a good metric for that is what is the length of your, your prompting compared to what, are you, what you're getting back? If you're really tired and distracted, you've got these one sentence prompts, you're lazy, like, reframe that. But I notice sometimes that, you know, it's, I'm stimulated and I, I actually end up writing prompts that are pretty worthwhile and it pull a lot of thinking out of me and it can get me doing a lot of uh, mental labor to return to the theme of mental labor. So I think there's potential for that, for, for LLMs, for AI to be a, encourage a little bit less passivity than social media feeds, at least. That's interesting. I really like the idea of the, the sparring partner or someone to come and challenge you on all of your biases and faulty thinking. I think that's should be the purpose of true friends. I mm -hmm. think even having a, a practice with friends, if you've all got the bottle for it to sit down together and be like, right, I'm going to lay out some of the, some of my plans for the year, some of my current beliefs and my, my worldview. And I want you to just pick it apart and show me where I'm being an idiot. And there almost needs to be, I think I've seen someone talk about this, like the boardroom exercise where you have to have ground rules where it's like, you lay your case and then you have to just open yourself up and shut up and let yourself get torn apart rather than trying to go in and be like, Oh no, but what about this? And it, um, I think that sounds like a really valuable practice actually. That's interesting. We're almost getting to the point of saying that we want our LLMs to be our friends. Cause I think that the two definitions of friendship, the, the two, actually, th all right, I'll, I'll give it a Trinity. Some of the three things that are requisite of actually somebody who's a friend of yours is can you sit in the room and have utter silence and not be uncomfortable? Can they challenge your opinions and do it in a respectful way and tell you the things that you need to hear when you don't want to? Um, and then I think, are they going to be there, you know, regardless of a, it's not reciprocal. It doesn't need to be reciprocal. Like I, I have this, this like rant about marriage and everyone's like, oh, it's gotta be 50, 50. It's gotta be 50, 50. 
And I'm like, oh man, you got to accept that it's never going to be 50, 50. You got to accept that sometimes like I have a really hard time when my wife does more things when it's 70 and she's 70% her doing things and 30% me doing things. I have a harder time with that than it's the other way around. But the reality so is, is it's going to balance. It's never going to be a 50, 50 balance. It's always going to oscillate. Well, that, that's to. something that, um, what's her name? Bro- not Bronwyn Bender. The one who wrote Gift of Imperfection, Brené Brown. Um, so she, she has this thing where she's like, whenever you're in an intimate relationship, you need to communicate where you're at on the scale of one to a hundred. So you turn up after a long day, you're tired after work. You go, Hey babe, I'm sorry, but today I'm a 20%. I can only bring 20% to the table. So you're going to have to bring 80% and I'm a little bit more fragile. I'm a bit more ratty today. So just go easy on me. And vice versa when it's like, Hey, look, you know what? I'm doing well today. I'm a 60, I'm a 70%. So like I can, I can foot the bill. And then if you're both turning up and you're both tired and irritable and you're both at 20%, it's like, right, batten the hatches, shut the blinds. We're going to order a Domino's. We're going to watch Netflix and just completely recharge. Yeah. You know, that this is, that's really, that's really interesting that we're almost saying that the relationship with these AIs is going to be as intimate as one of a friendship the yeah it's it, it, there's an interesting set of pillars that you've laid out there of like here are the things that should determine what a friend is and what a friend should do and certainly being a yes man which is what the model seems to be trained to do from what you've said is not one of those roles and if anything it can lead people down a like i'm trying to think of a, a scenario where like if you have someone who's going to who just doesn't they don't have the insight themselves and they're asking the language model for life advice. It could very easily just take them down a bit of a winding route. Um, yes, of course, there's safety measures built in by OpenAI where um, if you were saying, I'm going to shoot up a school because everyone, you know, the, the women hate me and whatever, then yeah, it's going to say like, oh, I would not advise against violent actions against your classmates or whatever, but that's because it's been built into the model. Um, but yeah, I, I, in fact, I've got a few questions for you for you both on this, but I don't want to derail. Derail it. Things. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so uh, just on that note, on the kind of the safety of the models and the, I guess, the danger of this stuff. So right now we've got OpenAI, they've, and presumably even Falcon as well, through their own ethical structure, have built restrictions within the model to say, if it's related to violence or, um, you know, espionage or any of these things, then don't don't allow. You know, it's it's put the 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 barriers up around certain areas that might be dangerous to use the, the language model for. When we use it, when we're at the point where we all we all have homegrown, personalized LLMs that I've seen a few of them on GitHub that are running without the need for the internet. You can just download it and tinker with it yourself. Are they going to have the same levels of safety restrictions? Do Does anyone have access to just play around with the source code and decide what's allowed and what's not? Depends is on that, the model. Is, so yes. is that a legitimate concern or am I being stupid here? Because I don't, I don't know about any of the technical stuff with this. So, okay. So let me give you a bird's eye view that I'll drill into the, the grubs in the ground. Um, Anyone can look at a paper that knows how to read it and replicate a model. So like Llama, like Meta, uh, Facebook, 
has created a really the, the best open source model right now is llama um and you could take that and even falcon um and you can say how did you train this and i can train it the same way and either take the same data set and i can just replicate it one to one or i can take and create my own data set and then alter it um, which is why there's so many uh open source models and it's growing so you can in in the way that you put it which i like how you did that you can take the the source data because once again these models are just databases and you can create a new one and put in your own ethical set of court you know source in there like it would be i think it'd be hilarious if you did this but you made it all like middle middle age text so it's all the morals of the middle ages uh you you could do that and then all of a sudden it's going to tell you you know uh you know chivalry isn't dead anymore and you could do all these things <laughs> um so uh you you can uh yeah, you, I you think you're freeze, fr fr freezing a little bit, but you're good now? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, you, you can do that by just literally one-to-one -one taking the, the source data and doing it again. Now you can also bake into the model uh, weights towards certain things. Now the rules that you're talking about of don't shoot up a school, that's actually a layer on top of the model itself that is filtering it. So you can take that down. The school shooter text is in the corpus and then they've said, oh, but don't don't use that in the data in a way yeah in a, it's more like um something is coming out and before it's presented to the user run it through another process that's more of what it's like and you can take a model off the internet and you could build your own safety mechanism on top of it if you want to do that um so that is possible if you're you know you're skilled enough to be able to replicate the models you can you can replicate it your own way you can build your own safety layer on top of it if you want like I, i'm i'm positive there's going to be somebody out there who's going to create a gpt for kids and there's going to be a layer that's in the middle of it that's going to nerf it to make sure that it's you know it's it's as best it can padded walls right so you okay because i mean there's potential for abuse with that but i'm also very excited by what rowan has described there of being able to create a corpus just purely from high high quality writing if it's all just from good books and decent writers and all that and then that can be then you're asking Hemingway and you're asking like Dickens and the you know the questions rather than having to sift through all the mediocrity or it being so weighted towards WordPress like anyone with a computer I don't want you know, when I ask a question to the internet, I don't want to include a heavily weighted opinion of everyone with a computer within that answer. <laughs> and that's why we need quantum computing because it's actually, it's, ex it's expensive to do that. That's a problem. Um, but to double click on the open source issue and Llama, because I do think that's, that's really probably related to everything. I think, I mean, everything we've talked about, um, certainly it's re related to independent entrepreneurship it's related to having personal assistance. It's related to education. It's related to definitely related to this, to this issue of censorship. Um, so Lama, they, they, um, because they released their product as mostly open source there, there are some models that you can download. I've downloaded a, a like a small version of Lama that's quote unquote uncensored, which means they, um, it's a, it's a llama that's not built with uh, 
correct me if I'm wrong, John, but it's not built with a fine tuning layer of redirects and filters. Um, so that it is just, just a corpus. Now you could, you can also make the case philosophically speaking that the corpus itself is biased. For example, it might be inherently racist or prejudiced. So it's got its own um, censorship built in by, by virtue of what it is, which is what you're talking about with everyone with a computer. Um, but um, there's real quick, there's a really great rage against the machine quote, which is you don't have to burn the books if you just remove them. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, by the way, did you see the news story of the like Ohio public library system using uh, OpenAI's API to categorize books to be banned? Like they, wow, like, really? Yeah, scan, scan the, the text of the books and based on some keyword logic in the prompting, identified banned uh, the ban list. <laughs> no, but, but I did see uh, the the religious police in Iran are going to start using AI so that they could do judgments on people. Uh, that they used to take uh, forty days and four or fifty days and four hours is what they're uh, they're hoping they could do. So, so that's absolutely going to keep happening. Jesus Christ! So for, for that to happen, the, would would they have to train it on the Sharia? They'd have to give yeah, it yeah, all exactly. of the mm -hmm. okay. Which is so simple. That's that's such a simple task. Like it's something I could do in an afternoon. I'm I'm not, I'm not that good. It's just that simple of a task. Right. Okay. Because I mean that that's the stuff that I'm most excited about. Being able to put medical textbooks into. I, I thought that was Sharia law for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just bursting for. Um, yeah, it's that that seems like the the obvious thing. And I, I as you mentioned about accounting is the. The, the the big one that would save everyone a bunch of headache but surely um law medicine that then architecture they're not they're not arts they're you know they're a set of inputs and constraints and surely if, if that's yeah. all you trained it on recycling too the, what's that recycling there's a um a really you froze for a second yourself so I, I threw in another example in the, in the absence of I, I threw in the example of recycling because there's a, a recycling project in the u.s which is really successful, uses AI, uses a computer vision and AI to basically just recycle at scale. Um, ah, cool. Which is, I think that's, that's an example of a, a good job displacement. Um, oh, cool. Um, yeah. So I, I guess it's rapidly assessing materials and colors and, and uh, making a decision on, whether to recycle. Yeah, and there there is actually a um, like a smell to text LLM, so that there's a potential there for there's a pilot project for smelling, detecting smells, and then categorizing based on smell as well. So you could do the visuals you talked about plus smell, which would be nice. I mean, I would like it to re recycle the stuff in my kitchen. I think that's <laughs> that's that's what my personal. <laughs> My, my LLM in my pocket's going to be used for. <laughs> Just scan it, you know, with my phone. Then I need like a robot arm, of course. But, but yeah, there's 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 a lot of yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of jobs that are that are difficult and um, demanding and and psychologically unrewarding. It's just like with washing machines and domestic labor. Washing machines. Uh, 
contributing to the U.S. economy by uh, releasing so much intellectual fire, firepower from people who are mostly women, right, who are having to do, to do washing at home, who now all of a sudden had the time to you know, do whatever they did, whatever whatever they did that contributed to the economy or just the economy of ideas, at least. So I think there's there's a lot of potential for there's a lot of potential. I mean, it's just can. It's, it's, it's expensive and it, it's resource intensive and um, it could be that um, the AI won't reach its full potential until we get to quantum computing. It's a possibility. Maybe. I feel like we're going to have a, a purpose-built AI chip and it'll make things a little easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and Yusuf, I think your medical idea is is awesome. The concern I have with it is similar to the Sharia law one, actually, which is if the Lancet puts out the medical model, they're just going to wait what they want, or even just by what they publish is going to be affecting what the model is. Um, and that could be, I mean, we saw it with most recent, uh, I'll, I'll speak tangentially so that it doesn't get picked up by any AI sensors that exist on the internet. Uh, you know, the most recent spat of medical information that was going out and weighting it towards things of saying that doesn't actually, that's not true. There's only one path forward. Um, and then it turns out, no, there's actually a lot more things that we could be done. Um, so I think anarchistically is the only way forward. It's the most chaotic in the beginning, but the most sustainable in the long run, which is we need as many models out there doing as many things as distributed as much as possible, yeah. because then we can have the most amount of choice, um, but we just need to be able to spot the bullshit and the experts. You, you look pregnant with thought. And you said, if you have another question for us, we could definitely go to that point too. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like it's, there has to be a, an amnesty period in medicine where we just throw a bunch of models at things and we don't use it in the clinical judgment just yet. We just say, look, we're just, we're pooling the information, <coughs> all of the imaging, all the blood results, patient history, patient notes, and just see what comes up in the leaderboard. And once the error rate is below a certain amount, measured against the gold standard of consultant diagnosis, then we can start to iterate on that. Um, I think a lot of people outside of medicine think that diagnostic ability is going to be the the big benefit of AI, but diagnosis is a quite small part of medicine. It's not it's not that hard for. 90 plus percent of conditions you know for most diagnoses are made on history alone and then once you add in blood pressure basic observations and then maybe blood results and then then imaging you're like asymptotically getting to like the mo- the, the the information that you need to make a diagnosis what's better a better use of this would be analyzing blood results relative to patients previous data or, or population data, looking at disease hmm. progression, looking at imaging and early capture of um, pathological findings and ruling in, ruling out edge mm-hmm. cases, that kind of thing, which is is a lot better better because then the you know the human is at this the core of the decision making process and they're using the tools to almost as prostheses for the data that they can't perceive yet. It's a sub perceptual level. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree with that in general with technology of phasing it and, and slowing the adoption of it uh, to be able to see really what it could do 
And I, I also really appreciate that too, because, you know, I think the best medicine is preventative medicine, right? Would you agree with that? So uh, mm-hmm. being able to say, like, I would love it in, you know, in my lifetime in the States, if your relationship with your doctor was actually personal, as opposed to transactional. So be able to walk in and them having a conversation with you that lasts longer than 30 seconds and is looking at a longer period of time or looking at your history and your progression of things, what's your daily life like, and then using that as a means to consult and you know actually mm-hmm. be a part of uh, your life in a way. Did you have another question for us, Yusuf? Because you said you had a couple. Uh, I think there was the, this thing about the homebrewed models. And then I, I, I guess the final thing, if you guys have got time, um, I think we've all got to wrap up soon, but just the potential for monetization of language model data, is is this something that we should be even concerned about or is it is it just the same? It's just an extension of what we're already doing, which is monetizing search history and fingerprinting devices and chat history and all that stuff. I, I think both 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 cases are are pretty shady. Um, so, you know, Google's Google's practices are pretty shady, and there's been there's been conflicts between the media, the traditional media, and Google for twenty years, because Google claims that they're, you know, the, the, the you know they claim a uh, symbiotic relationship, mutually beneficial relationship, and over time they've they've monetized and sold out that relationship and actually sold out their their entire business model actually right before Gen.ai hit which is really funny and they um you know the, i think there's a you can make the case that they essentially still they still information they still content and i think you can definitely make the case that um the major commercial providers of large language models do the same thing there's so many success. There's so many lawsuits against OpenAI right now. I mean, Stephen King, um, Stephen King, and about seven other major writer, Michael Chabon, <laughs> um, who's the Amy, Amy, the senator's daughter, Amy, the comedian. So there's a lot of there's a lot of. I mean, even the Common Crawl, the C4. There's a Washington Post article which has the whole Common Crawl, and you can search it. Um, so you can, that's what I was saying earlier. I was shocked at how much mediocrity goes into the corpus of language models, including my own website. So my own, so I, I've published, there's about 60,000 words of my blog posts, which is about the length of a business book. And I, it says on my website, copyright. And I, you know, I don't know, we don't know what open AI's, um, language models are trained on because they don't release that information. But we do know that some, um, at least academic projects, LLM projects use the common crawl. So there's definitely a lot of theft. I mean, Noam Chomsky calls it plagiarism, right? Chomsky is a sort of a language expert and an artificial intelligence expert going back to the 50s. So he's weighed in on this a lot. And um, I think that's a pretty good frame. I mean, there's a, there's a high risk of plagiarism and theft. Uh, it's an ongoing issue. The Art of Message, your website, is on the Common Crawl? No, uh, just Rowan Price. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, I forgot that that was your original one. Um, yeah, or is this where I tried to newsletter posts? Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, yeah, I do think we have to accept just as much as we have to accept that anything we put online and see online, it could most likely not be real as far as like a not just somebody trying to make something either a troll or to influence us or might not even be a, a real person kind of catfishing us. I think anything we put online is going to probably get stolen uh, and plagiarized. Uh, I think yeah. that's kind of the, the world that we're now in. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's a good use of everything. Yeah. Uh, I wish they would have just used Project Gutenberg. I mean, Project Gutenberg has all of the open, you know, copyright publications that have happened for, you know, back hundreds of years. Like they, they could have used that. I mean, it made it would have made the language a little less contemporary for sure, but they, they, they could have done things um, as opposed to just ripping everything off the internet. Um, I think that was, was, a, was a terrible uh, way of doing it. I think it is definitely plagiarizing and I think they're going to get away with it. So I yeah. think we have to try to prepare for that and make sure that what you put up there is, you know, is behind a payroll paywall or a login screen. Yeah. You know, like one thing we forget is um, most of the internet is the quote unquote, like, you know, dark web or off the, you know, off the front of the line walled gardens, you know, like what you see without having to have a login screen is probably like less than 5% of the internet. Most of the internet exists behind a login screen um, or, you know, some type of closed system. So if you want something that's not going to get ripped off, put it in there because even these podcasts yeah. are going to get transcribed and put into something. I, I, I'm very aware of that. That's right. We're generating training data right as we speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's another point about open source too, is there's potential at least for transparency in terms of where the data is sourced, which is kind of cool. Yes. Yeah, which also why I think is it's hugely important. Definitely. Um, yeah, we're coming up on time. Do uh, you all have uh, anything else you want to, uh, to add? No, thank you for the chat though. It's super interesting. Good to meet you, Yusuf, finally. Fellow bandwidth coast to coast. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, y'all. We'll cut it here. Sounds good. Take care. All right.